0: Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com slash try. This is
1: not a dream. This is not a General Porter. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sears Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues in all things maritime. And good day to everybody. Glad to have you aboard for another edition of Midrats. And if you are with us live, I'd like to extend the invitation for you to scroll down to the bottom of the show page. That is where you will find the chat room and that is the perfect place to join in with some of the usual suspects during the course of the show. If you have some observations you'd like to share or if there are some questions you would like for us to direct to our guests during the course of the next hour, that's a great place to go. We'll monitor it during the course of the show, and um, we'll try to bring in your thoughts and observations uh, into the conversation for the next hour. And if you've got some stuff you've got to take care of and you've got to run off, Or if your schedule makes it a little difficult for you to catch us live, uh, you can always take a shortcut and go over to iTunes, Spreaker, Spotify, whatever podcast aggregator you use and uh, find MidRats and subscribe. It's free and that way we'll be waiting for you to join you for your commute or any other time you've got some white space in your schedule. And hopping on today's schedule... Uh, today's show it's it's going to be it's going to be a good one because when I, I read this article uh, a, a lot of it really hit home but what really hit home to me is the uh, uh, the fact that we've got a, a fleet lieutenant who's thinking this way and is looking at some ideas uh, that we can use going forward and when you look at everything that you've you've read and we've talked about here uh, other places in the in the media or the chatterati space. Everybody's been looking at the challenge that we are facing with the increasing size and capability of the Chinese fleet on the other side of the Pacific. And as we look at how to address that, um, the past always has ideas, clues, lessons, and sometimes frameworks and templates that you can modernize, bring up to date, and you don't have to reinvent the wheel a lot of times when the, the spare parts are already there. And that's what we're going to look at today is back the last time the U.S. Navy faced significant challenges on the high seas and we had to make a case to not only ourselves but to the American people and their elected representatives to give the Navy the resources it need to grow so if the call came we would be able to execute as the people would expect. So we're going to look at some of the lessons that we can take from that relatively successful intellectual, political, and struggle to grow our Navy back when I was just a midshipman, and uh, Eagle One, I think, was approaching 04, maybe. (laughs) Could be, could be. But our guest today, he recently wrote an article in Naval History Magazine a few months ago titled, Lessons from the 600 Ship Navy, and he'll be with us for the full hour. That's Lieutenant Joseph Sims, United States Navy. Lieutenant Sims is a surface warfare officer and a 2018 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy where he majored in history, and he's presently serving as the main propulsion assistant aboard the USS Antietam. And Joseph, he is with us here as an individual. His comments and opinions may or may not represent that of the United States Navy or any other organization he may be associated with. Joseph, welcome to MidRats.
2: Well, uh, good evening, uh, Commander Sal. Uh, it's great to be on on the show. I'm excited to be on and discuss uh, a lot of the lessons uh, from the 1980s and some of the, the enduring uh, tenets that we can take from that period.
1: And it was it's interesting when you you sent me your your brief bio and I looked at it. Uh, I kind of took a deep sigh. I said, "Lord Almighty, this <laughs> this lieutenant got his commission a solid three decades right after I got mine, but." Uh, in the in the continuity that we have in the naval profession, uh, and you're a history major, so I don't need to explain this to you. But uh, understanding history, it it gives you at least an intellectual habit when you are facing something new, is to take take a moment and pause and go, okay, have other people gone through similar challenges before, and in hindsight, which is a great gift to have. You know, what are some of the things we can take away from that? And so here you are, you're, you know, a little over four years past commissioning date, and I don't think there's any other cohort than your cohort that's going to have to face the challenge that older generations now have the luxury of being able to sit and talk about. Um, and that's going to be the period from 2025 to 2040, when, when you look at the projections, it's, it's no longer a theoretical challenge on the other side of the Pacific, if not already today. It's a very real challenge. And so it's going to take uh, a lot of good thinking and good decisions um, in order to allow you and, and your cohort to be able to move forward in the next couple of decades and, and to do kind of what we talked about in the intro, which is uh, answer the bell uh, if it comes. So what was it? Uh, that brought you to that that place in time back in the – and you outlined pretty well where the intellectual ex- efforts actually started at the end of the 1970s, but kind of hit its high mark at the uh, publication of the 1986 maritime strategy. But what, what brought you to look back at that point and to look for what uh, we might want to remember about it as we face the challenge today?
2: Uh, uh, well, well, Sal, I, I found myself with a little extra time in uh, Newport, Rhode Island, uh, as I was going through ADOC and the prospective engineering officer course after my first division officer tour on USS Lassen. And on the Lassen, uh, we did we were in uh, Fifth Fleet um, during uh, the 2019-2020 period after they had uh, after the United States had uh, taking out Soleimani and the, and the tensions were increased and, uh, there was uh, significant, uh, we had uh, dual carrier operations for a, a brief moment in time. And then going back to Rhode Island, uh, and then you just see on the walls, the, the, uh, the pictures of, of, uh, of the shit of the, these fleet exercises. Uh, and you, and then I, I was reading oceans ventured by, by Admiral Lehman. And it was just inspirational. Um, the, the, uh, just the strategic vision and the execution of that time period. And then the the impact that it ultimately had. And it seemed fitting, uh, since there was a lot of, a lot of, uh, um, at the same time, a lot of some, uh, cynicism, uh, around, around the fleet a little bit that the fleet had, you know, and a lot of it, uh, pointing at true, true ideas that sometimes had been spread through spread, uh, too thin and that there with the, uh, that the surface fleet had been spread too thin, which is uh, true, in, which is, has been true in many respects. Um, but I think uh, we have to move forward in a concrete direction, and I think the '80s uh, in a positive direction. And I think the, the build-up from the '80s is, is a, provides that, that framework in many ways.
3: Well, one of the things I liked in your, your uh, article was that you. Uh, did comment on the fact that you, and I guess historically you you cited the uh, the people who said this initially, we can't basically tech our way into a, into a fix of not having enough ships. you kind of want to discuss that and what what your take is on
2: that uh, we, yes i i think so uh admiral um Admiral Hayward basically said there there's, there's no there's no free lunch in the the maritime superiority business. That, that was something that uh in his strategy from a uh, document from the late uh, late 1970s that I, that I that I thought was uh very insightful that he he was like and he pointed at maritime superiority and that there was there's something in, in the number of ships that need to be necessary in order to provide the depth to execute the high-end exercises necessary for great power competition and so I think there's the temptation to think that you know uh, that there will be revolutionary uh, offsetting technology that will come and will, that there won't be the need to do this but just the uh, the hard work of just executing large scale exercises uh, preparing for the high end fight if, if there might and obviously there, there's a lot of new technologies that are coming that have the potential to, to really change warfare but that won't that's not going to happen uh, until it happens, and there's no uh, guarantee that it will ever happen. And so, until then, we have the ships that we have, and we have to learn how to employ them uh, as proficiently as possible uh, and as uh, tactically lethally as possible. Um, and so, that's I think that, and that was one of the the points in the 1980s, is, is they worked with what they had and made a set realistic realistic uh, goals that could be achieved.
1: Yeah, I thought that was a, a very good point, and it, it comes in right in in the middle of your article, and it's it's really timely because when people look at the the defense buildup, a lot of people will point at, well, you know, they brought the battleships back. Yeah, that's the high-profile thing, but they also did a lot, for instance, um, really built a whole bunch of Oliver Hazard Perry-class frigates, which are no longer in the U.S. Navy, but they serve very well with some of our uh, allied and aligned uh, nations Navy to this day. They also um, built the uh, Spruance-class destroyer with a lot of white space for weapons to be named later. It's like these things weren't quite mature and uh, you know, we can't force it, but we know it'll probably come down the road to we'll leave the, the, the capability there. I think there was a lot of Grumbling about the Spruences when they were first commissioned because of that white space, but I think uh, when they really came to fruition, uh, back when we got the VLS cells on them, uh, that they really proved their worth. And there's a lot of inside the lifelines intellectual churn that you outline in your article that's required to get there, and uh, part of that seduction that I got technology you know we're still going to go through and they went through at that time there but the mindset of the leadership in the Navy there was a lot of continuity there sometimes uh, without mentioning any names you can get a little whipsawed going from one CNO to another to another administration inside and out but you outlined there that with the right leaders and the right ideas in place in discussing that eventually you can get some, some leverage, for instance, uh, talk for a bit for the 70, what you, uh, what you found out about the, the period of the late 1970s where, you know, one of the quotes from your article was quote, there was very little agreement within the government over the Navy's principal missions and how to structure the fleet to meet them. And you had a group of, senior naval officers such as Admiral Halloway, Admiral Hayward, Admiral Lyons, who advocated at the tail end of the Carter administration. In many ways, you could say, you know, waiting for more fertile ground when the Reagan administration came in, that they already had done the intellectual work and had built the network to support it, um, such that uh, when that opportunity did present themselves, they were able to uh, move forward to build that naval force structure. Talk a little bit about uh, those those three, and perhaps some other ones that really set the foundation at the uh, end of the 1970s for what we saw for the first, you know, especially two thirds of the 1980s.
2: Um, well, well, yeah, I think I think uh, it, it really struck me that. Um, it was it was very much internal to the Navy. A lot of this, the uh, the, the strategy in and, and the in and the uh, and, and getting all of the, the blueprints ready um, that with the Sea Plan uh, 2000 uh, that that Admiral Holloway first initiated at the Naval War College, um, and so so the templates and the templates were in place so that when when there was the the political Political will. The Navy had a concrete plan on the table that was feasible and and worthy of funding. And uh, there was I was looking at a recent article by uh, former Secretary uh, Lehman and, and and proceedings recently. I think it was it was published last January. About and he, and he mentioned that same thing as that he funded uh, existing institutions within the Navy that had called for this buildup. And so uh, people like Admiral Lyons had put in the uh the operational strategies and uh, to carry out these these high north exercises and and build the uh build up the fleet in a in a uh a positive direction to as opposed to the previous uh where before the the navy had a secondary role and during the uh during a potential war with the cold war, potential war with the Soviet Union um and so i think it's i think that that was something significant as that uh, people Sea uh, Plan 2000, uh, Bing West. They, it was a group of naval officers, uh, 04s, 05s, 06s as well within that Sea Plan 2000s that really came up with a lot of the blueprints, uh, the blueprints to execute this 600 ship buildup.
3: Well, one of the—I don't know if you looked into it—but I mean, one of the questions is: uh, back in the back in those days, we had a number of, of naval shipyards, uh, many of which were closed due to BRAC or, or because of uh, allegedly they were higher costs than commercial shipyards. Uh, did you look at that at all in, in in context of how we got could could develop back to a 600 uh, ship navy if, if we don't have the shipbuilding uh, capacity we might have had in the in the 80s?
2: So I think that's uh, that's an extremely important piece of, of moving forward is getting that that shipbuilding capacity back. I know there's been a lot written about that in proceedings lately, um, and so that that's going to be a central uh, a central uh, plank of, of getting the, the fleet back up back up in numbers. Um, uh, but I haven't looked into that specifically.
1: One of the things that i, I find a little bit of uh, a little bit of overlap is you know like i said i was just a I was just a midshipman when all all this was coming to a peak in the in the mid to late eighties but I, I remember the arguments because I remember uh when I was uh i think a second class midshipman they handed everybody a copy of the maritime strategy i still have it still have it in my library I'll pull it out now and then say uh yeah, this is how it's done but um there was a certain, a certain rhyme today when, when people talk about the Taiwan Straits, uh, what we can do if we need to or are asked to do about Taiwan, the South China Sea. There's a lot of difference, but there's also a lot of rhyming about that in the Chinese mindset and the high north in the Soviet mindset back in the 1980s. And the efforts that we were able to make in a rather short period of time, when you look at the – from the late 70s to the mid-80s, you cover in your articles that uh, subsequent members of the Soviet general staff attested that that was a major factor in the deliberations and loss of confidence of the Soviet government that led to its collapse. And, you know, my co-host could probably talk to this as well, which is a pretty amazing statement when you consider the state of our Navy – Um, after um, the U.S. withdrawal and then a few years later, the fall of of South Vietnam, that we could turn around and have that much of an impact in such a short time on the Soviets. And part of that, and uh, I wanted to, as somebody who has spent some time in these waters recently, and you know the the fleet today better than anything else, uh, in conjunction with what allies we have in the Pacific, and I think there's been a significant change in the last, couple, three years, especially among the the Japanese and, to a lesser extent, the South Koreans. But back in 1985, uh, there was Ocean Safari 85, where uh, the U.S., um, with our allies, the Coast Guard and the Air Force, was off the East Coast and then went all the way across the Atlantic, went north of England, east of Iceland, and ended up in the Norwegian Sea with 155 ships and 280 fixed-wings aircraft and helicopters. (laughs) And they actually had the the Soviet Navy come out to play some. With with training, you just can't script any better. But talk for a little bit about what that would look like in a modern context um, if something similar was to be done somewhere between Honshu and the Philippines sometime in the next few years.
2: Uh, that i think that's the uh i think that's the million dollar question is exactly uh what what type of exercises to execute uh to train for this this conflict and i think uh admiral uh swift uh, had some 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 good ideas about that uh integrating uh carrier strike groups um, i think the specifics uh i don't have all the answers for the specifics of that but um i think we need to uh and we need it needs to be something that uh is uh prioritized and i think i think uh seventh fleet i think we we all i think that's i think that the navy knows that that's that's the uh the big question and that's what uh that's what we're working towards but um i, th- I think the details of that are are, are still uh I, I i don't have the details to that well
3: one of the other uh, uh interesting aspects of where we're going i mean we, we were. I swear, just uh, a couple of years ago, we were talking about trying to get to 355 ships. And and again, we seem to be um, keen on building large ships. And, and despite all the warnings of people who have wargamed uh, any number of scenarios in which uh, if you lose, I mean, if you lose if you lose a ddg you've lost more than just one one capability you've lost a bunch of capability uh, is there an argument for having uh, not spending money on you know a new ddgx and a, a cgx and all that but on many smaller Ships even smaller than, you know, I guess, their Corvette size or, or smaller, rather than, uh, uh, you know, than the new frigates that are coming down the coming down the line. Is there an argument for that, on the basis of what you've read historically?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the uh, the uses of the Navy uh, and the lower end conflicts, uh, escort services. Uh, through the Strait of Hormuz, uh, or during a time of war, or uh, potentially, uh, if for a, uh, a scenario in the Pacific, uh, some type of blockade. If we were to uh, blockade the, the the various choke points, if there were if there were a war with China, I think uh, the the lower uh, more more uh, attritable uh, expendable combatants would would definitely. Would be something that we would want to have, have, um, would want to have in the fleet, um, and I think uh, I know um, uh, Captain Hendricks has written about that, and I think a lot of what he what he has written has, uh, makes a lot of sense, and I think I think the Navy knows that. Uh, I think it's just uh, kind of recovering from from the, the LCS, and uh, I think there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm behind the, the new frigate. Uh, the frigate's coming out.
1: Yeah, looking at, you know, your experience on the fleet, you know, when the USS Lassen, I believe, is uh it's a what? 21-year-old ship now. Um, you know, it's based off the design of the Arleigh Burke. You know, I remember hole one uh, actual when she left VIW, pulled into Portland, Maine, and back when they had the big blue dry dock down there and had her finishing out. And now you're on the the Antietam, which I believe is over thirty years old, I believe maybe thirty five or so and you know these are ships where um they're they're here and they're filling the gap we're still built i uh, would tease my 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 friend Mark Vandroff now and then that we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna be building Arleigh Burks until I assume room temperature because uh, we've been building them a long time they're still doing just fine, but we Previous generations failed your generation, where we we didn't appreciate risk and a lot of the the challenges of uh, overestimating our ability to bring on new technology that you do outline well in your in your article. So we missed out uh, not just on CGX, which never wound up cutting metal on, much less approving a final design. We have um, parade friendly. Uh, DDG 1000, the Zumwalt, and of course LCS, we're decommissioning them before the commissioning ceremonies are almost done. So we've lost a generation of um, of warships, and so we're going into and you rightly mentioned you know the uh, upcoming Constellation class frigates really is a uh, too important to fail type of program. But you put on a nice little warning there about. Disruptive technologies and perhaps too much optimism when it comes to, to unmanned systems. If, if, if you had a chance, if somebody said, hey, um, here's an extra $7 billion of shipbuilding funds for the next two or three years, and because you and your sailors have a vested interest in where that's going, you know, what are some of those things that you see that really work on the fleet, really are best shaped, to address our challenge if we wanted it being able to be deployable and usable by 2030, you know, where would uh, Lieutenant Joseph Sims love to put $7 billion right now if he had that option? Um,
2: uh, the, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think the frigate is, a. I think the frigate is our, is, is really the, the best hope right there. If, if we're just talking about a specific platform, um, and then, uh, as well as the uh, the flight three uh, DDG, I think I think those uh, getting the flight the flight three DDGs out uh, with the spy six uh, radar. I think that's I think those are uh, for me for me uh, from what I've seen, uh, those are two uh, viable, um, uh, pretty not not overly uh, overly ambitious. I think there's the the right amount of uh, risk and reward. Um, and able to deliver a, uh, a concrete uh, capability, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd be really excited to start uh, see the Flight Three D destroyers as well as uh, as well as the frigates.
1: And kind of a little follow on to that, if my my co-host will indulge me a bit, is you also had a an interesting um, and very informative and really immortal quote from Admiral Holloway there, where he said, quote. Um, I don't think this is a direct quote, This is just a paraphrase, but uh, Admiral Halloway about force structure planning and uh, the importance of risk assessment said that force structure is derived from consideration of strategy, threat, and risk. If, if a proper strategy is projected, the threat correctly assessed and the risks accurately identified, uncertainty can be minimized and naval requirements can be established. And, you know, kind of what you and I have taken a shortcut on is we've talked about threat. Obviously, we're looking on the other side of the Pacific, and we've talked about risk, um, known systems and systems we need. But uh, the, the strategy that we're all trying to, to work under, uh, what type of additional work do you think could be done to better explain, outline, or to, to sell the naval strategy that ultimately we should be able to attach whatever we're talking about when it comes to the threat and the risk.
2: I, th- I think uh, just being a uh, uh, more concrete, more concrete and relating uh, what ships we need where, uh, how they relate, and, and the U.S. Navy's overall mission of both. Uh deterring conflict and, and maintaining st- stability as well as training to fight uh and win the war at sea if that occurs. I think there's just uh I think it's I think the the uh the requirements you know, you know, to have certain, you know, destroyer uh in certain places around the world as well as a carrier strike group and different fleets, the various requirements uh of different geographic uh and com- combatant commanders. Signals um, and then relating that to the overall framework of, of yes, China is the uh, the People's Republic of China is the is the uh, primary threat, but but it's not realistic to just think that we can devote everything there and not and not have to worry about what's going on in, in either Iran or, or or Russia and that won't take up resources as well. And so, in terms of uh, I guess. Uh, message the, the strategy um I, I i think just being more specific in in and just how many how much requirements the the u.s the u.s navy really has around the world uh to, to keep the peace uh and i think that's i think that's the the key to address is that the, the that we have these ships out here uh and they're not just driving around in circles uh they're they're providing presence which is is uh preventing conflicts and whenever there is a crisis like after after we uh after we killed soleimani or or during uh when uh speaker uh nancy pelosi visited taiwan there's the uh there's the political demand for u.s uh ships to be present so that we can negotiate from a position of strength um and I, so i think that that kind of the dual kind of the, the two things that we we have to do uh deterrence Sea control, power. The, the various missions. I think they're just. Uh, I just think there's just kind of a disconnect, and there's kind of, and, and a lot of that is tied with the the delusion that that new technologies, uh, including uh, the uh, new precision guided munitions that China has, and uh, as well as unmanned systems that all of these have made sea power less relevant that, the, that the, the the ships are you know sitting ducks in a war, and so I think that that, that uh, just the the exact the full capabilities of, of what the carrier brings and how the how it's defended i don't think is that well understand well understood outside of the navy perhaps, and uh, maybe explaining that better would uh, and just the continuing uh, i think there's just a desire that that the the carrier seen it's its last days and that comes sometimes within the navy as well um, and so i think that's one of one of the the ways uh that we could uh message this this a little bit better
3: yeah that's that's interesting point that we <laughs> internally our dialogue uh sometimes works at cross purposes to the to the uh need to uh, explain well <laughs> You know, those are those are discussions that need to be had, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have X number of ships because we need that number to stop. Uh, you know, I guess what we used to, you know, the problems we had at, uh, ships out of Yakuzka where we're, we're uh, driving the ships too hard and not giving enough time to uh, to allow for the proper training of the crews. And that I, I don't know. I hope that's not a, a current issue for you. But uh, is is there a feeling? And, and I. If you don't want to answer, just feel free not to. But is there a feeling among your community that that uh, we're, we're uh, riding these ships too hard and, and hanging them up wet, and, and we're lo- going to lose people as a result of the, the seeming indifference to the uh, to their personal lives and schedules because we don't have enough ships? We have to keep everybody out there for longer periods of time.
2: Hmm. I th- uh, to. to- yeah to, i mean that that's a tough question but i th- i think to be honest i think the navy uh i've um i haven't i haven't seen the navy do anything that's that's unsafe in the way it deploys ships and and the 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 optimum fleet response plan i haven't seen a ship that gets underway i haven't been on a ship i've been the main propulsion assistant for over a year i haven't felt that i've in any way been in a situation that's unsafe or that the Navy, we were not ready to get underway. Um, I felt like we've always, I've, since I've been on board, uh, uh, during my nine month, uh, deployment, uh, on Lassen and during my last patrol, I haven't, I think the, the Navy does, I, I I've seen, uh, for, from my experience, um, that, uh, That we've just uh, gone out and and done the mission, and that there's challenges that occur, and that there's there's the Navy is just by nature of just being at sea for long periods of time that it's 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 tough, and 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 the ships the ships are old. Um, I think they're definitely I think and I think everybody recognizes that in terms of logistics support for the cruisers, especially uh, that a lot of and and probably destroyers as well, a lot of a lot of repair parts that we. There needs to be uh, you know better more depth in the supply chain so that there's not this there's not uh the need to you know uh cannibal uh cannibalize from other ships and i think that's recognized that we don't want to do that again um but that has i'd say that's the only um just the the uh the fact that we have to sometimes can take parts from other ships um and, and, and that's been around for a while so uh, I I wouldn't, I think that's, uh, not necessarily a saying that, that, uh, an example of just being rode too hard, but I think, I think definitely getting back on a sustainable footing should be the goal. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with depth in the force structure so that we can then do both, uh, high-end exercises and, and the routine deployments. But, but in my experience, I, I haven't been in a situation that I felt like the Navy has, that we've gotten underway in a position that we, that we weren't ready to go underway.
1: And that kind of jibes with um, other guys that I've, uh, and ladies, that I've talked to recently, that you know, after the events of the summer of, of 2017, while you were still in Annapolis, that um, there was a large effort to do what could be done better. And that really started to bear fruit. It takes a couple of years for these things to really bear fruit, but started to bear, bear fruit about three three or so years ago, especially. Um, and I, I think people are trying to do the, the, the best they can with the ships they have. And, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned our friend Jerry Hendricks a while ago, and uh, I, I tease him sometimes because his Ford's not Ferraris and influence squadrons uh, it it seems to be new every couple of years as, as more people rediscover it and really are waiting for it. And a lot of what the challenges you talk about maintaining ships is not just an old ship, but any ships has to do with yard availability period, um, experienced craftsmen, uh, having you know, more than one dry dock you can go to and that's building that infrastructure and for, for an Aegis guy like yourself, I was impressed the fact that you, you emphasized a couple of times that, uh, you know, we've talked about China a fair bit. Uh, you've mentioned, you know, some of your ex- uh, experience there in the Fifth Fleet AOR, which is also a high profile. But we are a global Navy, and uh, we've talked about exercises a few bit, and those are absolutely critical to maintain our relationships With other navies and their ability to to work with us and that takes a big size fleet and you know people call them low-end combatants um you know you mentioned you know patrol craft is one i think the frigate often is considered that as as well you know corvette size there's a whole series of of small craft as well that work really well with a lot of our friends and partners that the antietam pulls into port that's just that might as well be a a Star Destroyer from Star Wars for some nations is just completely outside of their scan. But that investment in a balanced fleet gives us to do the the peacetime part of the soft power competition, and soft part of the great power competition. And you mentioned uh, Rick Berger and McKenzie Eaglin about how they summarize how, how competition today it doesn't – eliminate or get rid of the, the big crisis, but there's a whole series of things that a, a, a Navy that would like to be the naval force of the world needs numbers to do. So, you know, the nine-month deployment isn't the standard. It's the old six-month deployment, but you've got to do what you do with a few ships that we can. You know, talk a bit about some of those other missions in the Navy. You could see Um, the the lower-end combatants, the old high-low mix, uh, could do and and how that would give us some capabilities and what type of positive effects that could could bring the fleet.
2: Uh, Yeah, well, I think uh, a lot of the the patrol craft have been very active uh, in 5th Fleet, uh, escorting, uh, I think, anybody that's uh, been out to 5th Fleet, the PCs are are very, very active, um, and they've been worked a long time um, and I, I think there's I think the plan is for them to be replaced by Coast Guard ships primarily. Um, and uh as well as there was the uh a lot of excitement originally around the uh the Mark Six uh patrol craft, uh, and the early command opportunity there. Um, and I think uh, a lot of people uh have you know, read Wayne Hughes and, and the different uh the different, um, ways that, 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 these smaller ships, smaller, even like missile patrol craft can be employed in a, in, in a time of war. And I think especially with some of the war at sea strategies, uh, and, 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 and the Pacific AOR that, that they could, there's a lot of utility in terms of, of blockading and patrolling, uh, working with allies, um, as well as just in fifth fleet, and so I think, as well as counter drug interdictions, uh, when I was on last, and we did that for about three months, and it was it was uh, exciting uh, and a good uh, rewarding experience, uh, but probably not the best use of, of a destroyer. And so that would be another the, the drug interdiction, the, the maritime security, the counter piracy, um, all of those things that are important and kind of cementing the United States as as the leader on the high seas but and, but they don't necessarily require a billion dollar destroyer or cruiser as well as i think the other thing uh that having these patrol craft i think they're tactically useful uh but i think they're also important in giving early command opportunities to junior officers uh and mid-grade officers and i think a lot of uh i think uh I think a lot of the job satisfaction of being a surface warfare officer comes from comes from leading uh getting to lead sailors uh getting to lead sailors at sea and that's that would be a, a good I think that would be a retention tool um uh, uh to get the right people to stay in is to keeping keeping those within 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 the navy yeah, you're-
3: you're singing from a hymnal that many of us have uh, written about and discussed for for a long time. And during the uh, during the height of the Somali piracy, I couldn't understand why we were not having uh, PCs and other type uh, smaller ships out there, or even even making up some ships that you know taking up some stuff from from uh, uh, offshore petroleum uh, support. Uh, ships and stuff, and and manning them up the way and arming them, and and using those instead of having, as like you said, a, a, a multi-billion-dollar destroyer. I think even an aircraft carrier got involved in one of the Somali pirate pirate endeavors. Uh, you know that kind of activity is important, uh, but you know, I, I we have a blue-water fleet, uh, and we have and and which it's a challenge for us to take that blue water fleet into the green water or the or the uh, littoral areas and and uh, without exposing it to things we don't want to be exposed to not that they're not capable of responding but but uh, it just seems like uh, and uh, it seems like a, a waste of of uh, assets and wasting the assets plus uh, I I too uh, uh I know back when I was a lieutenant, I would have loved to have command of something. And some of my contemporaries got, you know, they were lucky enough to get uh, PT boats and and uh, uh, some other uh, smaller ships like that. Uh, do you think that would be, I know I mean, you said it, but I mean, do people discuss that sort of thing? Like it would be great to have your own uh, uh, small uh, coastal uh, missile boat that you could, you could uh, run around in?
2: Uh, I mean yeah, yeah, I yeah, when the Mark Sixes came out, uh I mean the the best swells that I knew applied for the early command program, uh on my on on my last ship and on uh on this ship. Um and, and people I knew from the academy. Uh those the the people that we that that I would want to stay in the navy, uh they they were applying for that program. And and some of them got it and uh and then and they went through the, the the application process. And then, and then the rug was kind of pulled out from underneath them uh, and, and they went on and did different shore duties. Um, and so I think that's definitely, I think that's should be the, I think, slow sometimes. And I think obviously the, uh the retention bonus is, is as is is a recruiting tool, you know, it's, it, it's necessary, but I don't think it should be the first thing that, that we lead from in trying to, to maintain a, a, the, the, culture of, of surface warfare officers. And I think, I think everybody knows that, uh, it just sometimes is expedient to emphasize kind of the, uh, you know, the, 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 either the, the different, you know, um, uh, nice to haves, uh, and, and, the, and the, the rewards, the good rewards for, for superior performers, uh, during shore duty, uh, but I think uh I think and I think emphasizing as a community uh what sets us apart as as surface warfare officers is is leading at sea, commanding at sea. Uh it's, it's just a unique environment. Um and that's something to be proud of. And I think the patrol craft would would be be a way to, to emphasize that.
1: You know, Joseph, I I'm glad to hear you say that because it's um some people, including myself, on occasion, have fun talking about generations and stuff. But uh, that's mostly just ribbing each other. There's continuity there through the generations, and that's always been a frustration for my co-host and I. We've talked about this with guests over the years that, that we're still trying to understand: <laughs> is um, the ser- the series of incentives and disincentives that we offer our our junior officers to stay in. And uh, like you, uh, and you'll be seeing this in spades here pretty soon, uh, some of the best officers I served with got out and left active duty because they were frustrated uh, because they wanted, they're being told things like, well, you need to go to shore duty. It's like, well, the the, you know, the jobs you're offering to me, I will be doing nothing. You know, I want to go back, go back to sea. And then I'll have people on the other side will tell me, well, people need to have shore duty. There's something, that, like you talk about with the PC, if you told the type of lieutenant that you want to see um, for the next 15 or more years stay in the Navy, uh, those that will raise their hand is like, yeah, I'll take that. If, if you can forward deploy me, that's great. Back-to-back sea duties, sign me up. I want to go, go do that, whereas they can go someplace else and just have the soul sucked out of them. And there's something to be said about um, if you if you have – your your hand-raising lieutenants get command um, as a lieutenant that when they uh, become that XO or that CO down the road on your billion-dollar-plus warship, they've already learned some of those lessons and procedures early on, and it makes for for a better Navy in that regard. Uh, And if for a second, you know, I just – I wanted you to kind of extend that what you're talking about before. Is somebody who's you know just left a DDG and you're coming into a CG, um, and you talk about kind of one. And I'll use this phrase. You didn't use it, but a demotivator of getting rid of one of those few opportunities for a junior command. You know, what are those things that that junior officers are hearing from Millington? About what they quote need to do next, that are are demotivators to the the type that you like you said you know from the Naval Academy you would like to see as your peers in five years or ten years or, or so from now, and and what are those things that would be great motivators for those people to stay in that are either gone away, non-existent, or are the high demand, low density type of positions.
0: Well,
2: that's a that's a good question. I, I mean, I think I think it differs a lot from person to person, and so I think that's why there is it is good that there is a broad range of a broad range of uh, you know shore duty assignments because there are a lot of. I think uh, the naval postgraduate school is a, is a, is a is a good motivator for keeping keeping people in, and they develop intellectually there. Um, it, yeah, it's, it, it really differs from person to person, and I, I think some people. I think extended periods in the yards is a demotivator. Um, I've been lucky to to be able to um, go out uh, on deployment and and patrol both on uh, on Antietam and my last ship. And so getting out there doing the mission, um, I think if you were on a ship that had been in the yards the whole time, uh, that's a demotivator. I think just seeing the logistics sometimes, um, just the the lack of, of part support sometimes, uh, as a demotivator um and then I think uh just uh time away from family, I think it's just it's just uh just being at sea uh, just the nature of, of the profession is very tough on 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 the families if you if you have a family, and so uh, finding ways for people to, to you know have that uh, protected leave periods uh is is important.
3: Yeah, it's a it's an interesting problem that, uh, and I like to harken back to what Sal just said. I mean, I remember talking to my detailer, and you know, you 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 felt like they were always trying to force you into a uh, into a, a template they had for what you ought to be doing. When all the interesting stuff, it seemed to me, was the stuff that was unrelated to what their their choices uh, were, um, you know, and. and that I will say that the best CEOs I had when I was on active duty were the guys who had prior command. You know, one guy was a had had a minesweeper and then got a destroyer. One guy was a the diesel boat submariner, ended up uh, with deep draft ship. So, you know, that kind of experience made them uh, much. They they weren't as nervous as as the first time CEOs. Uh, that I had on active duty, and that I think that makes a big difference in how you get treated as a JO. If you're, if you're, uh, s- so I, I would, you know, when you're talking about having lieutenants have a command, I'm, I'm hugely in favor of that. Lieutenant commanders, you know, if you had a squadron of of small, fast patrol craft of some kind, and you had a lieutenant commander as a squadron CO, that would probably be a a good job for him and and help him move up but you know I'm not sure our system sees it that way if you if you're a destroyer guy and you uh, lord knows you shouldn't then suddenly switch to amfibs cuz that would probably be a career killer is you know do you view that template kind of concept that, that comes out of bupers sometimes as a as a negative
2: uh, yeah i'd say i've i've seen the same thing like i had a ceo on last that came from a pc and he was very good with you know ship handling and and taught us a lot and then um, now, with uh, on a cruiser, uh, the, the, my CO has commanded a destroyer, and so he is very good with ship handling and, and is able to provide that mentorship. And my XO on Antietam also commanded the PC, and so I think that that definitely is just something that is, is it, I, I see is just very beneficial uh, in terms of getting those, uh, because it's just um, I think that's what one of the things that, just command the command at sea of a major combatant like a, a destroyer or cruiser is just such a such a huge responsibility that um you know kind of tailoring these career paths to get meet you know staff duty wicket i know it's come out i know that the first thing is you know the from beepers is that you have to meet like four wickets of getting a master's degree Working in D.C. for two years, doing a joint tour, and then doing a Navy community tour. It's like that's what they they tell you. Uh, that 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 that's what's being told in order for you to become, with the ultimate goal of everybody becoming a O uh, six uh, major commander. Uh, and so that's I think that's I think that emphasizing those things is that's uh, it just it, it just creates a, a, a I think there's just a disconnect with uh, the the primary mission and motivation, uh, job satisfaction of leading sailors at sea, and, the, and then just the being pulled in so many different directions to to just you know meet uh, let more shallow uh, wickets.
1: Yeah, I don't feel like it's just you. That's and I know you hear it even more than I do. But that's a, a constant refrain, um, and I I don't know what it's going to take besides having a leadership who, who sees it that way to want to change because in many ways that um, optimal career path that everybody's trying to be shoehorned the amazing thing is it hasn't changed since i was a midshipman it really really hasn't the advice is is, is you know the same but good gracious the world is a lot different than it was when Ronald Reagan was inaugurated for the second time, but we still, for some reason, I, there's a lot of inertia, I presume. But I wanted to, I wanted to ask you earlier this, but so indulge me here. I want to back up a little bit. And this is one of my hobby horses, so I can see my, <laughs> you can see my ho- my my co-host putting his head in the hand already. Um, but we're talking about Halloway, Hayward Lions, late seventies. They had an opportunity with the better environment in the 80s to really push forward. Strong advocates, strong publication, big Navy story. I don't know whether you've had a chance to look at this um, or if if this has been part of your reading or such, but all of that took place before Goldwater-Nichols Act of 1986, where the Navy had the ability for its senior leaders to – not go off the reservation, so to speak, but to really focus on what their job is, which is training, manning, and equipping a fleet that's ready to fight and win its nation's wars, dot, 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 et cetera. Um, However, we we have interesting things, and I won't mention his name. He's just had positional authority. But um, while you were deployed, I believe, there was a fascinating exchange between uh, Representative Mike Gallagher Uh, who is one of the strongest advocates for strong of of the Navy we would like to see in Congress right now with the Vice CNO. And the Vice CNO, um, every third word that he said was joint force, joint force, joint force. So I wonder if, if you had a chance to look at part of the challenge that we may have to make our argument is that our senior leaders exist under a structure that of jointness and the joint force that kind of puts them on report if they do overly advocate for a strong navy.
2: Um. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I I th- I think I've yeah I think that's one of the wickets is for the career path is that joint that joint billet. Uh, I think that so I that, that was where I've uh, run across Goldwater Nichols. But um, yeah, I think it's I think that's hard to uh, I think that's that's going to be a problem. I know uh, that's something Secretary uh, Lehman also talked about. Uh, he was, uh, he, he was on proceedings to discuss his, his essay on, on the 1980s buildup. And that was something he mentioned as well as that he had that, that freedom, uh, to really, you know, pursue, uh, put the resources where he needed to, uh, just with the maritime domain being so global and, uh, just kind of breaking up within combatant commanders, uh, it's yeah, that's a difficult question. I think uh, that's that's definitely a difficult question, but you definitely get into positions where the combatant commander will want to, and this is another reason why we'll, we just need more depth in the force structure. But the combatant commander is going to want to minimize risk in his area of responsibility, and that that minim, The way to minimize risk is to have concrete assets. And then on the other hand, the Navy has a only a finite out finite amount of resources a finite amount of ships and so I think that back and forth between the combatant commanders and uh yeah and I, I yeah I've seen this throughout yeah, I've seen this in my career um you know the, the this so um yeah that's that's a problem that will will uh is is will require some some a lot of thinking
3: Yes, that's a great answer and a very difficult question. Uh, look, your your article is great. I think your your historical uh, background and and the in the and your approach to to uh, what the Navy needs to do next uh, based on that history is really really important, really relevant. And, I, and I'm not sure all our questions today necessarily tracked along with with the importance of what you uh, what you were talking about. But it's been a great discussion. Um, uh, and I want to thank you again for, for, uh, for being on our show. Uh, as, as we look ahead, have you got other plans to write another piece? Uh, uh, uh when you get the chance, I'm sure you're pretty busy right now, but, uh, uh, are you looking at doing some more writing or, or what's next for you?
2: Uh, I would like to, to write another, another essay at some point, um, on, uh, integrating, uh, unmanned technology, um, in the Navy, uh, and, uh, relating it to the broader force. Uh, I don't have, uh, don't have anything I'm still doing some, some research, re- research in that, um, when I have time, but, um, uh, right now it's just, uh, just going through, uh, the responsibilities of, of being the MPA on Antietam, uh, and, uh, that's, that's really, uh, been my, my focus, that's, that's my focus right now. So, uh, hope I do hope to get around, get around to writing again. I, I enjoy writing. I think it's important, uh, for neighbor all naval officers to be able to express, express ideas and get that uh, dialogue going, um, to, to really kind of crystallize what we, what we believe and, and, and the best way forward. And so I appreciate forums like you. And, uh, I think you, I think it's great that you and, um, Commander Salamander have this form, uh, this, this podcast, I think, uh, there's a lot of a lot of great stuff that comes from that, and I think uh, I think it, it 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 comes back to the fleet, and it, it really provides a wealth of knowledge. Um, and so, uh, at the moment, I, I don't have anything though so immediately in the future.
1: Well, Joseph, uh, first of all, thank you for the kind words. Um, uh, we really appreciate your time uh, to uh, st- sticking your head out from the fleet because I, I know being the MPA on a 35-year-old uh, ship, that's varsity football right there, so you should you should be in pretty good shape. Um, but when you do decide to write, you know, please pop me an email. You did a, a great job with this article, and I would encourage all the listeners, if you haven't already, on the show page, we have a link to it from Naval History Magazine. Um, it's a great review of a period of time. Uh, like I said, we went down a couple of rabbit holes, but there's a lot of intellectual effort uh, that, that people need to make to that period of time as we all try to look at a way to to build the fleet going forward. And uh, again, Joseph, really appreciate you coming on here. Best wish for uh, you and your sailors as we come into the holiday season.
2: Thanks again, uh, Silent Eagle One. Uh, thanks for having me on.
1: And thank you everybody for joining us for another edition of MidRats. Until next time, we hope you have a great Navy day. Cheers.
3: wants mm-hmm. to marry me, and so leave the friend and pick a dilly, or you'll be to
1: blame, for
3: love has barely do-